Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 46, Southern Comforts. Time to go to work, ladies. Lick your lips and swivel your hips. Maybe we'll get lucky. Put on your smiles and everybody think virgin. August 4th, 1961, your name is Gilbert Labonte, owner and operator of the Labonte Sewing and Quilting Academy. Quilting Academy? I thought you yeah. told me this was a brothel. It is. But believe me, Sam, the only thing being sewn out there are wild oats. Gina. Jake, what are you doing here? I came to see you, honey. How did you find me? You shouldn't have left me, Gina. <laughs> It didn't look good. It did not look good at all. Everybody at school misses you, Gina. Everybody's asking about you. Now, what am I supposed to tell them? No. Well, there's a 98.6% chance that she'll never even have the chance to turn down a customer again. Every once in a while, you think we get never some good mind. news, Never mind. Sometime know? in the next 24 hours, she disappears. In a month, her body is found in a swamp. And apparently, she was beaten to death. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And since we've arrived at Southern Comforts, we've decided to bring on a very special guest host, a veteran Quantum Leap writer and producer, and also the director of this episode, Mr. Chris Rupenthal. Chris, welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Chris. Well, I'm, I am thrilled that you agreed to join us. Uh, we can't wait to talk to you about this episode. Well, I'm happy to talk about it. It was a great episode, a great experience for me. So uh, I'm flattered that we're doing Southern Comforts. Well, you know, it had to come up in the rotation eventually. So um, <laughs> we're, well, we're flattered. Well, we're flattered that you took the time to talk to us about it. Well, I was actually... I, I, um, I was just rewatching it, and I was, uh, at least when you look at through Apple, uh, if you buy TV shows on Apple, he leaps in a glitter rock, which was an episode I wrote too, which I had forgotten that that was like the mm. next one. So I was like, oh, yeah, I recognize that episode also. <laughs> awesome. But I, I'll start you off with a trivia fact. Perhaps you already all know this one or not, but um, I actually have my shooting script with me. I, I had it bound, all my Quantum Leap scripts bound. As a Ooh. gift from my wife. 
Um, but um, the original title was Love for Sale. Yes. Yeah, it was not called uh, Southern Comfort. So um, that's, a, that's what it was written under. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great time. You know, Don was, uh, I know you've interviewed Don in the past. He was very generous about sort of internal promotions. And he gave me a shot to do this. And then Tommy wrote a great script. Uh, and I have to give a special shout out to Michael Watkins, who was the DP and certainly held my hand throughout the entire show. Uh, you know, so he was great. Uh, and um, while I was shooting and before shooting, during shooting, um, also Michael Zinberg, who was on staff, who's a great director, producer in his own right, was extremely helpful. So uh, I just want to mention all those names up front. There's many other people in the cast and crew to thank also. But uh, those especially were very helpful and, and generous. That was your only directing credit I saw. So, so this was your first time doing any of that. Yes, it was. Yes. Uh huh. It, yeah. It's sort of like a nuclear strike. Uh, the first time and it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. So, right. Well, I mean, you had been writing and producing for Quantum Leap, though, for a couple of seasons at that point. So how yeah. did you come to direct this episode? Like what, what had to happen behind the scenes? Well, what has to happen is you have to write good episodes for Don. That's sort of the bottom line. <laughs> and Deborah. I mean, Deborah Pratt is also extremely helpful and influential in all this type of stuff, too. So you write good episodes for Don. Uh, he likes them. He likes you. Uh, and then he says, hey, you, you, you want to direct one? You should direct one. And that's about as deep as it gets. Um, <laughs> you make it sound so easy. Yeah, it, it wasn't. And it was sort of out of the blue in a way. Um, Don was, as I say, he tried to bring people up and give them uh, chances if he, if he mm. thought you had earned it. So this was a big thing. And I don't know how other people have talked about the set or running the show, but uh, at least at that time, certainly on Quantum Leap, and this was something I had learned uh, by being on Quantum Leap, which was, in this case, um, Michael Watkins, who was the DP. Um, the DP is the guy who runs the set, really. Um, at that time in episodic television, directors came and went, and it wasn't very common for directors to be on staff as like executive producers or producers, which is very common now. Um, and Michael Watkins himself has gone on to be very distinguished in doing that. But at the time, DPs were really the captains of the ship and, and directors were like, you know, an, an honored guest, uh, doing stuff. And he ran a really great set. Um, it was a fascinating thing because I've been on a lot of series. He was unfailingly polite, <laughs> even under the most stressful situations or late at night when everybody's really tired, you've been shooting for 14 hours or whatever, you know, it's like, well, sir, would you please do this? Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, may I please have another sandbag here, sir? You know, um, <laughs> that, it, I didn't see that too often on sets. I saw a lot of friendly sets and good sets, but he really set a tone that everybody went along with, you know, and, and it was, it was just great. And he, as I say, he was a big help when I was directing this one. Well, let me ask you, I mean, when Don gave you an okay to direct yeah. an episode, what yeah. was your reaction? Like, yes. Or was it like, Oh, wait a minute. Now I have to actually do this. Was it more of a deer in the headlights moment or was it both of those? Um, it, it was, it was more like, yes, I mean, excitement, you know, 
the terror sets in a little while later, at least for me. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, no, it's exciting. You know, I went to USC film school. And of course, this is something you think about and dream about. And you did, you know, I did directing classes there and co-directed a, a musical when I was there. Um, and uh, so it was fun. And, and I thought, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get the shot, you know, and then you realize it's an army of people, you know, uh, I think Orson Welles said to be a writer, you need a pen to be a director, you need an army. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and that's what you, that's what happens, you know, suddenly this whole machinery is sort of swirling around you in a way. And, you know, it was a well-oiled machine. We were in our third season. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And Scott and Dean couldn't have been nicer to work with. I remember when I first started uh, on Quantum Leap, they would have to tell Scott to, like, stop moving lights and sandbags. He was so eager to help and so friendly. <laughs> and and, and it, just, it was like, okay, take a break, man. You know, it's like, you're the star. You don't have to do this. But, uh, again, it, that was just indicative of Scott. He was just, like, the nicest right. guy. Uh, and the most helpful guy. Um, so, you know, but when I got the directing thing, yeah, it was exciting. You know, I thought, oh man, I, you know, I got all these ideas. I know how to do this. And, you know, uh, of course you find out, you know, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, you, <laughs> you go, you go into direct and then it's like, oh no, it's not going to be like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I vividly remember. You know, you get call sheets with a shooting schedule. Today we're going to do these scenes or parts of scenes are going to be in this and that. And um, the call sheet was like, I forgot what scenes we were going to do. And then we, one of the scenes was going to be in the kitchen sequence uh, there. And I, and I had that all planned out. Okay, we're going to do, you know, scene 28B or whatever it was. And Michael Watkins goes, well, you know, we've got like, you know, four scenes in here. and And instead of you know, moving the camera back and forth in positions to do the coverage. Let's do all the coverage from this side now for all four scenes. And then we'll turn the camera around or move block and move this stuff and do the rest of the coverage for the four scenes next. And I hadn't blocked four scenes. I had blocked one scene thinking I was going to, you know, move the camera around, you know, right. He's thinking like a DP, like, okay, this is the smart thing to do. And we're going to make that. That was like sheer terror. <laughs> you know, at that moment, because uh, just I had to sort of like, oh, in my head, and with certainly with his help, figure out what's the easiest way to block these scenes and and do it so he can do most of the setups from one position, and uh, then we'll turn the camera around or turn the set around, relight, and do the coverage from other angles or whatever. Uh, and it all worked out. But that was one of those days where I walked onto the set, and you know, you think it's working and it's okay. Uh, you know, I'm surviving. And then suddenly, whammo. <laughs> so uh, you just never knew. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the, here's the thing with, with this episode, especially since we have you, um, I, I want to make the most of it. And I want to talk about the episode specifically on a story level and things like that. But I also want to talk about the process of getting an episode made. So okay. would, you like to, would you like to begin with more of the overall process? Or would you like to sort of dive into the story first of Southern well, Comfort specifically? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the process, you know, long before you start shooting, we were sort of on an eight day schedule back then. Um, long before you start shooting, you know, you've got to write this thing. You've got to pitch the idea, you know, and sell it 
Yeah, because because you wore so many hats there, you're in a real yeah. unique position to tell us exactly what had to go on from inception to air, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 sure, and certainly, you know, Tommy Thompson will probably remember it better than I do, but because uh, I don't remember exactly how Tommy sold this idea, but you know, he's just a great writer. And I'm sure he just said, well, Sam leaps into a whorehouse. And Don probably was like, yeah, okay. You know, (laughs) (laughs) know? Uh, okay. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. It it was prescient because when I was watching it, again, I was watching it just this morning. You know, it's all this whole hashtag me too times up stuff. And this is uh, all about, you know, female abuse of power and everything else like that. It's incredible to think this was done in 1991, 26 years ago. And it's very relevant today, I think. Um, but you pitch the idea. Don goes, yeah, okay. Uh, write a treatment, you know, you bang out a treatment, which is depending on how it is. It could be when I wrote treatments, it was often I would write uh, like two single spaced pages per act. So it might be eight pages long somewhere in that zone, you know, uh, and then you get notes and feedback on it from Don and everybody else. Um, and then you go off and you go write it. And, um, Tommy, I know, I don't know if he did it this way on this script, but, um, Tommy used to like to write. Sometimes he would just write his favorite scenes first. So he wouldn't start at the beginning necessarily and go from page one to page 56 or whatever. Um, you know, he'll write this scene and then he'll jump over to this act and write that scene. Then he'll go back and write this scene. And then he ties it all together and smooths it out. And you, and you have about two weeks to do that. Um, hmm. And then you revise it and revise it. Um, if I look at the shooting script right now, it's got pink pages on it. You know, every time you write a script and rewrite it, they change the color of the pages, you know, and it goes blue, pink, green, yellow, salmon, whatever. Um, so it goes through a lot of drafts, but a lot of times you're not rewriting the whole script. You're just rewriting lines or a scene or here or there. But so it takes all that time. In the meantime, once you've got sort of like a first draft done, it goes to Ellen Sinitsky for, for casting. And then Harker Wade, who was sort of like the main line producer, uh, you know, starts to try to get an idea of what to do for budgeting and sets and locations and what we'll need on this or that. And, and that goes on simultaneously. Meanwhile, you're, you know, in your room, procrastinating, uh, re- <laughs> <laughs> rewriting, thinking about, oh, my God, uh, what, what, what's this scene? I don't know. What is this funny? Well, I'll, I'll go talk <laughs> to Paul and Chris or something. No, let's say this. What? You know, uh, and then finally you get drafts done, you know, and you get Don's notes or whatever and Deborah's notes and everybody gets feedback in. And then then they say, well, OK, where well, the production meeting is set for this day, you know. Uh, and of course, what's going on also is meanwhile, other shows are being shot, you know, or other shows are being, you know, and Don's running back and forth between all these places. You know, it's pretty amazing what's, what's going on. Uh, and you just, you're just watching, you know, this happen. They come in, you see these people read and some actors, you know, like David Graff, when he came in, he plays a sheriff, you know, he was from police Academy, you know, and, right. and you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking, wow, I got David Graff. This is amazing. You know? Dan Butler, who plays Jake Dorliak, he's a terrific actor. Uh, and I think of him, he was like another version of Ed Harris, in my opinion, uh, who I think is also a terrific actor. Uh, he was a major fine. 
to have in the show. And, and, and so was, uh, uh Rita Taggart from Marsha. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, Deborah had a, had a good eye for casting. Um, so, so I think this person would be better. And you go, sometimes, you know, you don't have a gut feeling, it, you know, you're, you're undecided. And so you sort of go, okay, you think this one's great. Let's give it a shot, you know? And like I say, another time, some people just walk in the door and you say, well, this is the person. So then you get the, you get together, you sit to the production meeting, you go this, how many people we're going to need. There's a little bit of horse trading that goes on a show like this in quantum leap. It's not, except for the owl stuff, it's not very special effects heavy. When I worked on Outer Limits uh, up in Vancouver, there's a lot of horse trading going on because we did a lot of special effects in a lot of episodes. So you'd have to say, we're going to lose this many extras to buy this special effects scene, you know? <laughs> um, and that's that's the nuts and bolts of, of it. You know, you look at the production budget and you say, well, how, many, how much is it going to cost for extras? How many girls can we afford in this scene? You know, how many days do we have to have eight girls you know, or women dressed up, uh, you know, in the whorehouse, blah, blah, blah. And, and you just sort of play it that way. There's a lot, a lot of uh, juggling going on. Then it just happens. You know, I, they build the sets. And meanwhile, once you get sort of the draft done, you know, you're building sets and they're hammering stuff up and the set decorators are coming in and this and that. And um, you, you walk around the sets. I walked around the sets, you know, trying to you know, you have floor plans and I have copies of the floor plans here. And I was trying to figure out, okay, he's going to walk in this doorway and I'm going to shoot this angle here. And then I'm going to do coverage from over there. And you sort of walk through it in your head and, and you get an idea of what it's like. Um, things you don't expect is, and I think it was when I was shooting Southern Comforts, I went in the set one night to walk around to think about what am I doing the next day? And there's a giant raccoon walking across the <laughs> stage <laughs> because that universe raccoons lived in the stages, you know, <laughs> I don't know how they ever got in, but this is, and he just like walks across and he's like, yeah, what are you up to? Are you checking out the set? Yeah. And you're going like, uh, yeah, you mind if I look over here? It's like, yeah, go ahead. And, <laughs> and then he sort of ambles away, you know, uh, but so you do that, then, you know, you show up, you show up early. The, the nice thing about this is you get a parking spot right next to the sound stage. You get rather than your regular parking spot, so you get to park next to the sound <laughs> stage and show up. And everybody's there, and you just say, "Okay, the first setup is this, and this is what I imagine." You do a little rehearsal, and then they set all the lights and cameras, and then they come in and they start blocking, you know, making the light final adjustments, and then you just you start shooting it. And how many days are the shoots typically? Well, we were doing eight days then. And how long were those days? Well, usually they try to keep it like 12 hours. Um, sometimes I can't remember if we went much longer than that because you start paying uh, more for everybody. And if you go over past like 14 hours, it becomes like double golden time and stuff like that. So then it's like ka-ching. Um, <laughs> and I was looking again through my shooting set, you know, I don't think I've ever been on a show where everything was shot and that was it the first time I'm, I had a, I have a list of like 15 shots to do as pickups later on, you know, where they, hmm. they kept part of the set or they had to reassemble part hmm. of the set to get this or that. Um, one scene is a scene where Marsha is talking to Scott and she's sort of telling her life story and it's a very heartfelt scene in some of the bedroom. And I had done what I thought was a very director thing. Uh, I started wide on her back and she was facing windows, sort of looking out the window at nighttime. 
And I just kept pushing in, pushing in, pushing in, pushing in, pushing in. And until she delivered like her final line, she never turned around and faced the camera. And then we had her turn around. So we shoot this in and we move on and blah, 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 blah. We do all the dailies. And then Michael Zinberg or Don goes, okay, so where's the reverse? And I go, well, I didn't shoot one. <laughs> they're like, they're <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and, and I said, no, I wanted to keep the tension this way. And they were like, okay. And you can see like in their eyes, like, <laughs> okay, enough film school. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Orson Welles, good, goodbye. You know, reality, Chris, come back to us. <laughs> so that was like a pickup I had to do, <laughs> which was like shoot some reversals there. Um, and then another scene where um, the guys all come in wearing fezes. Who are there, they were very funny guys. And the, and the, yeah. the, the lead actor who played Luther, <laughs> I just remember watching it again. He was just a very nice guy and funny. But I shot that mainly in like sort of two shots and sort of medium shots like that. And I, and I really remember this one where I, we do that and I'm watching the dailies with Michael and he's going, yeah, I like this, I like that and this and that. And then funny goes, so where's the, where's the master? Where's the wide shot? I go, I didn't shoot one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he goes, you, know, you get that beat, you know, and that's when you know, my voice in my head goes, uh Oh, and uh, it goes, always shoot the master first, you know, then, then go in for the close ups, you know? Uh, so I was like, okay, that's an important lesson to remember. Um, <laughs> but again, that was sort of like my film school thing thinking, I think I had it covered enough in the way I had shot it. So, um, and those are things you just, some people instinctively do it one way and other people don't. I mean, I worked, when I was on uh, Covington Cross in England, um, I worked with a director who was an old time editor and the guy was about a hundred years old and, and spry. And he had cut this whole thing, the whole episode in his head already. And he really was sort of like, uh, I'd heard sometimes what Orson Welles had done and other things like that. He would just shoot part of a coverage from one angle, you know, like part of a line. And they say, okay, that's it. We're done. Next, move on. So you had to cut it the way he envisioned it in his head, you know, huh. in very limited coverage. And so I had done a little bit of that in Southern Comforts. And um, what you find out a lot of times in series television is what they really want is a ton of coverage and they put it together in the editing room. Right. And just so we can maybe give some context to listeners out there who maybe aren't as familiar with how things work on a film set, the kinds of shots you're talking about, like a master is basically just a wide shot that, that establishes the scene. Uh, reversals are just scenes from different angles, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah. Usually like roughly 180 degrees, you know, if I'm looking over Scott's shoulder at Dean Stockwell and I see only part of Scott's head and I see all of Dean's face, when I shoot the reversal, I'll just see part of Dean's, you know, face, the side of his mm -hmm. head, and I'll see all of Scott's. So that's the reversal there. Right. And this is all all aimed at giving the editors choices of angles for each take so that they can cut the show together as best as possible. Exactly. And not only just for looks, but you may want to change dialogue or shorten things. One of the greatest things I learned in film school and was only reconfirmed when I worked on TV series was a lot of dialogue can be cut out and you can lose it in editing room and still get the impact or a greater impact in the episode. 
personally, I'm not a fan where they have to do a lot of explaining of things in episodes. Um, mm-hmm. We used to call that laying pipe. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just exposition. Oh my God. You know? Uh, so, so uh, but sometimes you have to do it, but uh, you try to do it in an elegant way. So that's the process. For, so at least up to shooting and through shooting. Were there any particular challenges that you faced on this particular shoot for this episode? Uh, yeah, there's, well, it's always a challenge when you have lots of people in a scene. So if you have, you know, three, four, five people in the scene and trying to get coverage and, and where do you cross the line in the sense of where do I put the camera? So if I shoot it this way, Scott is looking from his left to the right because Dean is off camera right. But then if I cut around to Marsha, the character Marsha or the, the character, whatever, Paulette or Gina, um, is Scott going to be looking in the correct direction? Do I have to do coverage where he looks at a different direction? So when they talk back and forth at all, that's difficult to do. Like shooting scenes around a dinner table, those are tough scenes that take a lot of coverage. Um, but the, the biggest thing was, since this was my directing you know, debut, the day we shot the, the sort of climax of the episode where they do the graduation photo and then trap Jake Dorliak, my agents were there on the set from CAA. My girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, was there. And we're, oh, wow, great. He's watching this. And then goes, you know, I just, this doesn't quite feel right to me, this scene, this blocking. Because it's like right before lunch. And we're going to shoot the scene after lunch when I've got this all planned out. I just, you know, I think we should go over this and, you know, t- take a look at it, maybe change some things, which is like, Oh, there's an iceberg that just caved in our side of the ship. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And, and literally, we sat on the stage and sort of reblocked and went over the dialogue and ran different lines and tried different lines with the script person there taking notes and me and Michael Watkins and Scott and everybody going, well, what about this? And what if we could try this? And I'll stand over here. And, I'll, and it's like, oh, my God, you know. And you know, lunch ends and you got to start shooting, you know? And I just remember saying, this is like, you know, okay, welcome to quantum leap live theater. Here we go. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we just said, okay, this is how we're going to block it and do this thing. And we're going to say this. And they said, people, you know, we're going to drop this line and maybe add this line and stuff like that. I'm looking at, I looked at my notes again, you know, like cut out this lose question mark, you know, scratched out this. And, um, it all worked out fine, but that was, that was the biggest challenge. That was the most hair-raising moment. It was exhilarating, though, I have to say. And I have to say this. Everybody was game to do it, you know? Um, and, and Scott's motivation was not like, I want more airtime. It was more like, I just think it'll feel better this way, you know? Um, and he was just trying to make it better, and he did. Um, but that was hair-raising, you know? Um, and once we finally sort of got the basics down and that, did some shots on it, uh, then it was like, okay, now it's locked in what we're going to do. Now we can just concentrate on coverage or whatever else like that. But the initial staging and, and dropping dialogue and changing a little bit of dialogue here and there, that was pretty, that was pretty hair raising for me. I got to say, <laughs> I think that last scene, uh, turned out to be one of the best scenes in the episode, actually, like it mm. had a, a lot of fun stuff to it. You know, she rips the, the outfit off and, and all the staging for that, you know, and, and you mentioned it's, it's hard to to do coverage of uh, 
have scenes with lots of people. I think this was an episode with one of the largest ensembles. There was a ton of people, so this would be very difficult. <laughs> it, it, it was very difficult because, it, yeah, it was. It just kept having crowds of people show up. Okay, we got sailors. Oh, no, we got the guys in the fezes. Oh, no, we got, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a birthday party. All right. So, yeah, it, it, it was crazy. But, no, that scene worked out very, very well. And I was very pleased with how it turned out. And, you know, I, I have to say, I think I slept maybe four hours every night, maybe <laughs> that long. I, I, just, I would wake up, I, I, you know, completely anxious and, and oh God, what, did I do this scene? Did I catch, did I get that one? Oh, I got to make sure, you know, a thousand things go through your head. Um, and uh, but it was it was a lot of fun, and the crew was very very supportive during the whole thing. I think the only time I, I tested their patience was we were doing a, a pickup. I think where Gina falls out of the bed and knocks off the lamp uh, on her bedside table, and she hits her head on the floor like that. And I think I I think we shot it once or twice. And I said, you know, it's just not right. I'm looking at it, you know, on the monitor. I'm going, then we got to do it again. I think I probably did it like six times or something like that. And I know after about time four, there was one guy in the set is like looking at me like, okay, I'm going to kill you now if you do it this again. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I did it again. <laughs> you know? Were you happy with it in the end though? Yeah, I was very happy with yeah. it. In the end, you know? But you do, you do little things. I, I, I worked as a copywriter on Madison Avenue for four years and, and it shot commercials and that, uh, not, not, not that I directed commercials, but I've been on the set and written commercials. And that's what had prompted me to go to film school. But in commercials, you spend an enormous amount of money on, you know, 30 seconds. Um, so I was used to seeing a lot of money spent on just the tiniest details. And I remember in the kitchen scene of Southern Comforts, uh, you know, we're setting up the kitchen, putting all the props and set dressing. And they have all these crayfish sitting on this wax paper on the center table like that. And the gumbo is on the oven or whatever on the stove and we're getting ready to shoot. And I, and I, I walk over to the crayfish and I, and I go, well, they've been here. They've been shelling them. There's like no water. There's no mess here, you know? And so I said, can we get some water here and this and that? And they bring it in and do like that. And I remember Michael Watkins smiling and going, Oh, he says, you can tell you were in advertising. <laughs> little detail of, of making it water. It looked like it was mess, smash up some of the crayfish. You know, who's going to notice that? I did, you know, that, that bugged me. Well, that, this, this is the sort of thing that decades later, the upgrades to HD happen and you start to notice these kind of things more. And some shows you can't see that kind of detail in because it was just never there in the first place. Right. No, that's very true. So it's future-proofing. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if other people have talked to you about this. Um, and honestly, I was unaware of this little fact, which probably you know, and you say, this is boring, Chris. Don't say this again. Um, <laughs> but some somewhere, I believe, in every episode, there's a hockey puck on the set. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard oh, someone, that. It's, someone it's, told us that. Yeah, I've never that? seen a hockey puck. I've, like, I've I have combed these Blu-rays. I have never seen a hockey puck. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I, I I forgot to look for it in this one. I have to, I have to say, but yeah, somewhere like that. And I, uh, you know, and there are all sorts of little jokes. Um, like uh, one of my last ones, the Curse of Tahotep, um, the Egyptian hieroglyphs in the tombs 
some of the little hieroglyph figures are smoking cigarettes that are long, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know. Well, I heard there was was also a Bart Simpson in there somewhere as well. (laughs) There may have been. I can't That I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, But uh, anyway, yeah, it'd be fun to go back there and try to find the hockey puck. It's like um, in that TV series, Psych, I guess they always have a pineapple somewhere or a reference to a pineapple. Um, We we had a hockey puck, and I don't know how that got started. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's there. Uh, but yeah, so you, you go through this whole thing, you shoot this whole thing, they cut together rough cuts, you recut it, you cut lines out you, in editing. Don mainly did the editing. And then you get a list of shots like, Oh, we need this reversal or we need this wide shot. Or, we need to get Dan, you know, Butler getting out of a car or whatever. And so you get that list and you have that day set up for shooting. And then you go shoot those and you go shoot those pickups. Were those pickup days during the main eight days or was that after the fact? No, no, those are after the fact because a lot of times you have to do a rough cut and uh, decide what you need or want more of, or I'd rather have coverage on this line. We don't have good coverage do it again or whatever else, you know? And uh, so, you you know, it's a day, two days of pickups. You try to, you know, not do too many, but uh, it works out that way. I mean, I have one, and have a memo from Zenberg and Jeff Gorson, who was sort of producer and also helped oversee editing, you know, pickup shots. I think I have, let me see, 15 setups, they say, 11 on stage, four on the back lot, you know? Uh, and it'll be like, I'm, I'm looking at the script right now, right? my pickup page. Page 35, scene 35BB, exterior bordello, night, shot of Jake looking for an open window outside the house, okay? So just things like, uh, and that's all you have to do, you know, and then you go in and, you know, you've looked at the rough cut. So you sort of have an idea of what you need to do. Um, okay. And, and you, and you do that. Uh, and then, and then, you know, may, you may use those shots. You may not use them, but you have them now because you think you need them. Um, and that's pretty standard uh, on shows. You know, you do a lot of second unit and pickup stuff um, and, and you do that after the fact. Um, though on certain shows, uh, a friend of mine, Carl Schaefer, uh, who does like Z nation for sci-fi, they shoot everything on like high def 4d, something or another, whatever like that. And they basically shoot everything in masters and the digital image is so strong and good they can blow it up for close-ups and coverage and you just don't notice it. Wow. So, so people go, wow, that's great. You got a lot of great coverage. And this is that they just shot masters. You know, it's like, you know, three guys in a tripod and we shot this episode after lunch. <laughs> yeah, really, really. It's, it, it's almost that way. Cause I was talking to him about it around six months ago about this. And uh, yeah, they, they really, they have like a really small crew. And they shoot it all on this high def stuff, and that's and they just blow stuff up. You know, I need a two shot, I need a close up. We just blow up the master, and they, you know, uh, that's how they do most of the shooting on it. Um, that's a lot of HD raccoons. <laughs> yeah, <not> really. <laughs> but on, on on Quantum Leap, you, you know, we shot uh, you know a lot of two cameras with two cameras and stuff. So you just you know, you do the set, you know, you're going to do the master, getting the two shot here, or getting a close up while we do this or whatever. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you move fast. They, they had a great, as I say, a great crew. 
and and you, you know you're working on these big sound stages you know and they, uh, that's a that's a real luxury well, thank you so much for indulging the production geek in me. And, sure. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to hold the, the audience hostage to that any longer. Guys, do you have any uh, epi- questions about the episode? Or? Well, well, I had a question about uh, the theme and uh, and the censors. Uh, because I, I remember hearing that uh, this uh, theme in particular was on the table for a while, uh, going into a whorehouse. And uh, the problem was really... Uh, finding something that um, censors or whoever was were happy with that that would be acceptable for TV at the time. So I, I'm curious if if you ran into any problems doing this particular kind of of theme. Um, I honestly I don't remember any problems with it. I, I don't know if Don was you know having discussions with the tower or not. The tower is was the main office building at Universal Studios, by the way. So. Um, he may have, they did this. I mean, if you look at the outfits, none of the, none of the women are in particularly revealing outfits. And I'm sure that was a, a nod to that, uh, to do the censorship or the propriety of showing a whorehouse. Um, <laughs> certainly, and, and, and no one ever sleeps with anybody in this whorehouse as, as Sam makes a huge effort to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to avoid, you know? Um, and I think that was another thing because they, you know, they didn't want to, be, I'm sure universal didn't want to be seen as condoning, you know, prostitution. But that was kind of interesting about this in that it's compared to a uh, private dancer, mm. which was one shortly before this uh, that had to do with prostitution this one paints the prostitutes as, as the heroes of the story, really. Yeah, it did. And, and uh, it's a very interesting thing because, in a way, it's a perfect setup for Sam because it's morally completely the opposite of what he would be in favor of. And not Al, but, but <laughs> Sam. <laughs> and, and so it was great that Tommy put Sam in that situation where – He's just, you know, guys just keep coming in and want to sleep with these women and Sam's got to keep stopping them. That's, that's classic <laughs> conflict, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and whatever it is. And I was just reminded again of how great Dean Stockwell is and Dean and Scott together bantering with each other. Yeah. Um, that was so enjoyable. Um, so uh, that was a great thing there to have you know, Dean sort of play the, the horny sailor mm. that, you know, <laughs> and, and he gets Scott, away with it. <laughs> there, there was a, there was a line at the end that he had that I wonder if, if it was intentional wordplay or not with, a, <laughs> where, which, uh, which line is that? When, uh, when Sam's about to leap out and Al says, you going to come? He says, "Well, <laughs> not this time." <laughs> yeah. Well, Allison, I'd never spotted that. <laughs> well, that's crazy. That's just all I can think of, right? <laughs> You've ruined that final scene. <laughs> um, let me speak for Tommy there for one second, and then Tommy can call me up and and yell at me. It wouldn't surprise me if that was intentional pun on Tommy's part. <laughs> Oh, uh, Tommy, as you know, has a great sense of humor, and it, so uh, yeah, we yeah, and, and the network let that one slide, you know. Um, 
it's you know it's <laughs> it's not like uh, did we get a call from Gary Hart in the tower about that one? Uh, so uh, anyway, that's the time where we try to get a little wink in, you know. And and Don has that impish side to him too. So I think we're sort of testing the edges of the envelope there. But that was the fun of Quantum Leap, you know, uh, and and writing stuff like this. Um, so yes, it probably was a pun intentionally, <laughs> and and yet. Scott could play it so innocently, you know, <laughs> that you think, well, he's just, is he just asking him, is he going to leap now too? Or are you, you know, or is he making a pun? Well, that's the great <laughs> thing about Scott, you know, he, he could really sell these lines. Um, so. <laughs> For sure. Well, you guys yeah. also sort of had to push the envelope when it came to the more serious stuff in this, especially the scene that I'm thinking about when um, Dorliac is is beating Gina mm. with the belt. I mean, you you pulled no punches with that, and it was yeah. it was kind of jarring as a viewer because tonally this episode was was going for it seemed very comedic and almost farcical at times, but then it would veer into these very dark areas. So, can you you tell me how you approach the material on that front? Well, it's, you know, that's a really good point. And here's what I, I would say to that. Um, Don never shied away from a fight. Okay. He, to his everlasting credit, episodes were about things. I felt a lot of episodic television is just, okay, how do we solve this problem? You know, how does our get out of this jam? And Don was much more about, is it going to be about racism? Is it going to be about whatever this is, a sexual predator, you know, and women's rights or whatever it might be. And so he was willing to have a scene turn dark to make a point. And that's what we did. I mean, there was just no way to tiptoe around this issue, you know, I don't think it would have had the power or the force of the episode if we hadn't shown it or it hadn't been quite that dramatic and graphic. Um, And the brilliance of Dan Butler is he does that terrible beating scene and then he sort of backs off and goes, I swear I won't be, you know, I swear or the things will be okay. You know, he, he, he like flips a switch. And that to me, A, was stunning to watch him do that and and completely sold it for me um, that this guy is like psychopathic, you know, and has this explosive temper. And, And so, yes, it was dark. The episode had been sort of comic and over the top in many ways. And then do this, which is what I thought Quantum Leap was great at doing, which was suddenly actually addressing a theme or addressing an issue. Um, and then you say, Oh, how are you going to get out of this? Which is uh, why you stay tuned after the third act break. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, that, yeah, that, that was it. I mean, I just think that um, I don't think there was any real discussion. I don't recall any real discussion like, Oh, he shouldn't do this. Um it's more like, well, how graphic is it going to be? You know, how are we going to shoot this? And of course, and how are you going to shoot this without injuring the actor or actress, you know, right. Um, just yeah. like we do scenes, you know, 
when you slam somebody into the floor or the wall, how are you going to do that without them really hurting themselves? You know. Oh, they're, when they when they're at the hotel, Scott Bakula does like this flying tackle into him. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott, as you saw, would literally throw himself into these roles, into these <laughs> parts. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it is impressive, you know. Uh, and, you know, Diamond Farnsworth, uh, the stunt coordinator, you know, you, you work through all this stuff and you try to talk through it all and you maybe put pads on underneath your costume on your knees and elbows or whatever. But still, in some cases, you know, you got to throw yourself that way. Um, and, you know, and, Things happen when you do, you can do things half speed. You do things as a walkthrough, blah, blah, blah. Great. And when you actually say roll sound action and you do this, I, I don't think any actor can say their adrenaline level doesn't go up. And when your adrenaline level jumps that little bit or a lot, when it's action and you're on camera, you know, what you practice, if you were going to jump three feet, you can suddenly jump five feet, you know? Um, so you never know exactly when a fight goes on or what's going to happen, how if somebody's going to get carried away or somebody just moves farther or faster than they thought. So, yeah, it's, it's, you've got to be careful, uh, and, and danger in, um, uh, this one episode I did, a different one, one strobe over the line where the lion chases down this actress model. Oh gosh. Um, you know, they, they had practiced that. And I wasn't on the set that day it turned out, but um, I had seen the lion in person, which is a whole nother story. But um, <laughs> you know, the lion took off faster than anybody had thought or had practiced and knocked this girl down faster and harder than anybody had thought or practiced. And there was that split second of terror I heard later on that, oh, the lion is going to be a lion and bite this person, you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you're 50 feet away or 100 feet away, there's no way you're going to get there in time to stop a lion, even if he does try to do that. Fortunately, the lion just knocked her down and was like, hey, I'm playing like we've already practiced, you know, <laughs> but it just happened that much faster and much harder than anybody expected. Um at least that's how they reported it back to me. And so in a fight scene in Southern Comforts or the beating scene like that, you just, you have to be very careful and you practice and rehearse and then you shoot it. That leads into a question I had about the fight scenes while we're yeah. on it. Um, they seemed like these were much more down and dirty and sort of prolonged fight scenes than you usually see in Quantum Leap. And the example yeah. that I always like to give is the hero always delivers like a roundhouse punch or in Sam's yeah. case, a roundhouse kick, and it's yeah. over in one blow. And in this right. one, they are really grappling. Was that and close quarters and very claustrophobic? Was, was that a very intentional choice on your part? Uh, well, I, I think it was more like, um, I'm trying to recall exactly. Um, I think it was more like diamond suggesting things like this, like we do this fight this way, rather than me saying, no, I want to do a prolonged fight where they slam and toss around the bedroom, you know, but I think again, it's sort of like the beating scene. Um, it had that hint of realism, which was great you know, um, and which is what I wanted at that moment, you know? Um, so to see that happen, to have it 
you know, to have that more prolonged down and dirty fight, that was great. Well, and he's a character who really deserves a beating too. <laughs> like you don't, you're like, take the adventure out of this. Like you want this guy to get beat up. <laughs> well, you do, you do want him to see him get beat. Um, but what I thought was great was that, you know, it isn't like one punch and it's all over. Or he beats him up in the bedroom and they tie him up and the police come and take him away. You know, then this the story's over. <laughs> you know, mm. um, you know, no, he gets to walk out. You know, or that little touch when they go to the hotel room in the Adams hotel and, you know, Sam leaves frustrated with the sheriff uh, and he hands him back Sam's hat, you know, that to me is genius acting, you know, just the looks on their faces and the way they handled that. Those those little touches make it all the more real to me. Um, And if Sam had said something there, it wasn't written, but if Sam had said something there, I think it would have lessened, the moment. Um, so that was the great thing that, that Scott played it with a look. And, and so though sometimes, sometimes you discover things on the set, you know, um, you, you, you do that or, you know, the line, but you think, okay, you know what, when I get in the editing room, I'm going to cut that line. There was, um, there was a, a draft script that I read, uh, for this where it was, darker than that even because the the Jake Dorliac character was uh, a preacher in it and there was a lot more religious overtones and I, I don't know if that was something that maybe uh, just there was some pushback on it uh, I don't know if you know anything I about think there that. was some pushback on that when uh, now that you say that um, I, I think there was some pushback on that 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 might be too much and, and so it was changed I think like it, some of the stuff about the story makes a little more uh, sense with with him as a preacher. Not that it doesn't make sense, but um, you know, a school teacher versus a preacher. You know, people talking about how high uh, he's regarded in society, and you know what, how you can't take him down. Um, but I could understand why people would be leery about having a preacher in this situation. Yeah, exactly. And you do want the Southern Baptist Convention writing letters to quantum leap uh, about that. Well, and, and that's interesting too, to have a story where the preacher is the villain and, and the prostitutes are the heroes. So I, yeah. I, I found that interesting about the story. Yeah. And I'm sure that is, you know, was Tommy's original thought, which is that's the interesting contrast, which is the good guy is actually the bad guy. And so the bad girls are actually the good girls, you know, that is, is the interesting thing about it. Um, and I think that was uh, in this episode, but in general, just in the strength of, uh, of quantum leap, we often took different points of views, you know, uh, like in freedom, when I wrote freedom, you know, the Indian is the good guy rather than the bad guy, you know, whatever. So I think having the, the prostitutes, the women in, in this house, <laughs> the sewing academy, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, as the heroes and all being good, you know, and the interesting thing is, look, Sam, he, he doesn't close down the house of prostitution. You know, the other girls, other women stay there, you know, um, and uh, he doesn't save everybody, but he saves this one woman. Will we do this episode today? I don't know. Or have, would we have a different ending? Probably somewhat. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, back in 1991, uh, you know, this was, uh, I felt 
I mean, we're very proud of the episode um, of, of doing this. Um, so that you know, all these discussions that go on, you talk about a lot of this stuff, and then you get notes from the network on scripts, and then make you revise it, and and you do revise it, and you have internal discussions about it, um, and you know, hopefully, miraculously, um, it all works out. And it is when you know how many moving parts there are in making a movie or making a TV episode, you think there are so many different ways it can go wrong and disastrously mm. wrong. Um, it's almost a miracle every time that <laughs> uh, <laughs> it works out. You know, I took a film course at USC film business taught by a guy who used to write business columns for, I think, Daily Variety, Art Murphy. And he said, like with movies, and it is, let's say, with particularly Quantum Leap episodes, everyone is a prototype. You have never made but about a whorehouse before. So you're doing it for the very first time, and you only get one shot at it. And it's either going to work or not work, you know, because the next episode is about, you know, heavy metal glam rockers, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> another prototype, you know, and the next episode will be about something else. Um, so each one is a prototype. And uh, like I say, so many things can go wrong. And yet, because you're you're dealing with people who mostly are experienced or very experienced, you manage to pull it off. When I was working on a lot back then and, and people would ask me about writing for TV series, and I think it's still very true. To be a staff writer, is the baseball analogy, you can't just be somebody who hits singles and doubles. You have to be somebody who almost always hits a triple and occasionally hits it out of the park. You've got to be consistently that good. Otherwise, you, you, know, you don't get hired again. So you're dealing with people who are sort of like, in a way, being in the Olympics or Congress or something, you know. Um, you're already at that certain level, uh, and they expect even more from you, but even at that level, even when you're that, when you're as good as Tommy Thompson or Paul Brown or Deborah Pratt or Don Belisario, things can go wrong, you know, or not be as strong. And you're expected to be able to, uh, you know, try to lift the weight and carry the load. Um, you get scripts in that aren't working. You rewrite them as a group or you rewrite them individually. Uh, you punch things up. You know, it's a long collaborative process, uh, but you still, you have to have it right. But like I say, we, we'd never done a bordello show before. So <laughs> we, we didn't really know what the tone was going to be overall. Some of it you find out, you know, when you give Scott a line or Dean Stockwell a line, you know, they, they can read a line, you know, 16 different ways and mm -hmm. some of them will make you laugh and some of them are serious. And so you're not, you may say, do it like this or try to give me a little more of that, but they may say something that you never thought of, say it in a way you never thought, um, which is their own genius. And so you don't know. And sometimes scenes take on their own tone um, that you hadn't seen before. Um, and you either roll with it or you say, well, let's try it this other way. Uh, so that's part of the production thing. And I think that's the big thing about directing is you have to be able to be flexible and uh, you just adjust really minute by minute, second by second, you're evaluating and adjusting 
um, and, and judging things. Um, and you think, okay, I got it or I don't got it. You know, sometimes I saw this trick done it on other sets and, and seen it done on sets where you say, okay, like we're going to do another rehearsal. And the actors are okay. Yeah. And it's, maybe it's a tough scene and okay. So just, you know, just feel what you want go with it. What you think I do a rehearsal like that. And then the director leans over and very quietly says, roll sound, you know, <laughs> action to the cameraman and they, and they shoot rehearsals and the actors are feeling differently, you know, and they, and then they go, okay, we got it. And they go, okay, we'll do one more, you know? And sometimes the actors say, oh, let me do another take because I want to do another take. You go, okay, fine. But, uh, you know, you're, it's a, also a psychological game on the set. Are you going to wear out the actors? Are you going to wear out the crew? Do we move on? Do we got to keep going? Do we got a time? We got a clock? It's lunch, dinner, whatever. Um, so you're, you're juggling all those things and, and saying, well, do I have enough here? Is this what I really want? Um, and then, you, you know, you take your best shot and you move on. But yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful experience, but it's it's uh, it's exhausting. Joe Napolitano's director I worked with, and it, it was a good friend of mine. He always said, "Oh, he felt jet lagged after he had directed episodes," and that's what I felt like after I did this one. I, I felt completely jet lagged, you know, uh, just exhausted for about two or three days, and and I wasn't aware that's how tired I was until we wrapped, you know. Um, just, I like to ask this question to all creators because sure. you're talking about all these moving parts. Was there, um, any part of this episode that came together that emerged in a way you never expected that you absolutely loved? And on the flip side of that, were there any parts of this episode that you were really expecting that you wanted to gel, but just never did? Well, um, yeah, certainly go back, um, just the final scene. That the one that we sort of improvised and rewrote on the spot on the day, <clears throat> the graduation scene and, and camera stuff, that came together better than I thought. That one really did. Um, watching it again, I, I think some of the stuff with Marsha, I might have toned her down a little. You know, I think she sort of did the vampy madam stuff. Um, which on one level worked really well, but now today, you know, with this, you know, 2018 perspective, I, I might have toned her down a little in, in the more, when she's being more playful and trying to be seductive of Sam, I thought she was great in the bedroom scene where she's burying her soul and stuff like that. Um, and when she's talking with Gina, but uh, the sort of the vamping with him, particularly in the very beginning in the, in the birthday candle scene, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe I could have dialed it back a little. <laughs> I made for a funny leap in, though. It, it was a good contrast, I found. The fact that when she was playing and being vampy, it was different than how she really felt. It was sort of a, a mask. Excellent. Okay, well, then, then I'm a genius. It all worked exactly <laughs> as I planned. Yay! <laughs> Hi, you had the perfect reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So... I'm just flipping through as we're talking. I'm actually flipping through my shooting script and looking at all these notes and inserts and lines we wrote and other lines we cut out. So, yeah, or I have a note here like this one. Yeah, I, I said, I have a note inside of a, of a scene, scene 33A, which I say do straighter, where, where that's a tonal note. 
you know, or we drop lines. Um, so uh, I noticed uh, in the back, in the final scene, I have a bunch of cuts there where we cut out lines where we thought there were a few jokes and we said, let's drop the jokes here in the final scene because um, there was a little bit of banter. So that's some of the stuff you, you might cut out in the editing room or you might cut out when you're shooting. You really have to make that call. And so that's what we did. I think we cut it out in the shooting on that. Because um, we just thought, you know, this is, let's not break this moment and we don't need this lead in here. We'll just leap from this part of the scene, drop the next four lines and go to that. Um, so, uh, again, stuff you just, you know, you decide on the set or in the discussion or brief discussions. Um, and then you got to say, okay, that's it. You know, and meanwhile, the script person is, you know, furiously crossing out lines <laughs> or writing in slight variations on every take. So, uh, yeah, that's it. And that's my, my lecture on that, on script editing. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for this fascinating insight. In, and this detail is just terrific. It's just wonderful uh, when people can remember all of this. Chris, yeah. Chris, Chris, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I called him Tommy, you didn't I? Off with, you called him Tommy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> I did. You, you I got did. confused by the two Chris's too. That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think I would know. You know, we, we, there are a lot of fun people, a lot of great people working on it on Quantum Leap, but it was Paul, Tommy, and I had way too much fun working together. Uh, <laughs> well, then I'm going to leave so. that mistake in because now I feel like okay. part of the group. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't please. We're interchangeable, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Quantum Leap was great. Uh, it's a rare opportunity that you do an anthology series like that, where, except when I worked on Outer Limits, every episode is different. I mean, totally different. And uh, that's you know that was a great learning experience for a writer, uh, and and then to become a producer and director. Then um, and then again, that's to Don's credit. You really tried to groom talent and, and then, you know, hand you the football and say, go. Uh, so I'm thankful, eternally thankful for that. Do you have any message for the leapers who are listening out there? Keep watching, keep leaping. Um, the fans were always wonderful and supportive. You know, I've enjoyed it over the years. I've gone to a, you know, a couple of quantum leap conventions since the time of the leap. And uh, it was a special show. So I'm glad people are still interested in it because I, I think we tried to do something special with the show. I think that's Don's aim always. Um, and I'm just happy to have been a part of it because it really was you know, some of the best writing experiences of my life. Um, so that, that's what I lead with the leapers, you know, keep watching, keep leaping. You know? Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk with us today on the podcast. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mac, Allison. Thank you. And Chris, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Do you know the difference between warp drive and impulse power? Do you have an opinion over which design of the USS Enterprise was the best? Do you remember when Klingons didn't have ridges on their foreheads? If you answered yes to those questions, then chances are you're a Star Trek fan. I would like to invite you to listen to my new podcast, The Prime Direction. For 50 years, Star Trek has been affecting people from all walks of life, teaching life lessons and changing the lives of people all over the world. 
The Prime Direction is the story of those fans. On every episode, I'll sit down with a lifelong fan of Star Trek and trace their fandom back to the very beginning. We'll talk about their favorite characters, the toys they played with, and what their favorite series is. But more importantly, we'll talk about how the show has made their life better. So join me on The Prime Direction on the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as our website at CosmicPotato.com. And if you'd like to be on the show, just send me an email at mail at CosmicPotato.com, and we'll arrange a time for you to tell me about your Prime Direction. This is Donald P. Belisario, and you are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. So who wants to lead off from the break and thank Chris and launch into the most general discussion of one of the most general episodes ever? <laughs> You're already telling us what you Ooh. think. <laughs> Man. <laughs> well, it's bound to come up in the roster eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I really wasn't a dick when I said that, was I? No, no, I don't think so. Okay, we'll leave this in. Hey, we're back. <laughs> I don't think I was being a jerk. No, anyway, I don't I didn't, think so. I, when I was listening back, it didn't, it didn't. But if I did come across as a jerk, everyone, I'm sorry. And uh, I just want to thank Chris again for his uh, wonderful, wonderful time spent telling us about all that behind-the-scenes stuff. I know it was it, it was a bit much into the process, but that's the kind of stuff I live for, so I really yes, enjoyed that. Yes, same here. That was fascinating. He had his his production schedule and all of that stuff in his notes ready. Like, that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. He's oh. far more prepared for this podcast than I ever am, so again. That's, that's the frustrating <laughs> thing about running a podcast. I wanted to be in the room with him looking at those notes. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, that was way cool. It's also that that could be the researcher and behind the mirror image like mania that you have in your head. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you think there's a little bit? <laughs> you know, the the only point of reference that I have for for what Chris Rupenthal looks like is just the boogeyman. So yes. I just, that's all I could think of. <laughs> We're talking to him, just the the uh, the horror writer and the boogeyman. Yeah. Oh, that. No, oh, he was, was the mirror well. in that. Yeah, he was the mirror. Oh, wow. Well, and you learned something there. <laughs> I had to You're learn something. All kinds of stuff at today. some point. Wow, wait, all these experts here. <laughs> so, we did get to talk about the process a lot, but we did barely touch on the episode. So, if you guys are up for a little bit more of a general episode discussion? Always. Sure. Well, I don't think we really went into like what our our feelings are on the actual episode <laughs> no. uh, when we were talking with them. So, so maybe we should get like a a general idea of of our thoughts on this episode yeah i think i i mean i said it before and again i maybe it's like it had to come up in the roster and i just said it was a general discussion <laughs> about a general episode i didn't dislike it i didn't especially like it but nothing about it made me go oh my god you know it was it was a third season solid episode of quantum leap to me hmm? and yeah. there were a couple of problems but there were a lot of strengths too and um, I'm sort of glad that we were able to go beyond that and talk about the process more because I didn't want to put Chris in a position to sort of defend some of the weaknesses I saw in the episode, especially because he was just so jazzed about having directed it. And it was it, it's still sort of his baby. And I, I have nothing but respect for that, you know? Well, story like story wise versus what was uh, directed, I think like he did a great job directing it. Mm. Uh, I thought there were some cool shots in it, like um, they the particularly the scenes with um, shoot, I'm already forgetting the character names. Um, 
I'm looking it up. <laughs> oh, uh, Gina this is why I always have the book to hand. <laughs> uh, Gina and Marsha, when they had the scenes of just them talking, um, that can yeah. be a little tiresome sometimes in a quantum leap when you're like, okay, so you're just following these people from the episode that it has nothing to do with Sam or Al. But um, I thought they were shot really well, and uh, mm. they had like some, uh, I think that's a mirror shots in there of them that were kind of artsy. Uh, particularly uh, Rita Taggart. Um, there were some really pretty shots of, of her there. So, I mean, like, as far as how it was made, I, I, I think, like, uh, Chris Rupenthal did a great job. Story-wise, yeah, there are, there are some issues for sure. I'm, I'm intrigued by this. I, I don't see these issues, so I'm, I'm really interested for you, you guys to get into this a bit more. Well, it's not that it's a bad episode. I agree with Chris. It's, it's all right. <laughs> you know, um, it's solidly made. Um, and it, it's kind of funny, too, for, for an episode with such racy subject matter, uh, it doesn't stand out to me that much. Uh, it, like, if, if I'm watching Quantum Leap and I'm binging it and it comes around, like, I'm like, all right, I'll watch it. But it's, it's never one that automatically comes to mind. Like, ooh, yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, and I, I'd absolutely agree with that. But Chris certainly kind of intimated that there was maybe some specific issues with it, and I, I thought you were touching on that as well. And that's that that's the part that surprised me. I, I'm right with you guys, though. It's it's not an episode that I I immediately think about, but it's not an episode that I, I have any issues with either. I don't think it's it's hugely problematic, but I do think um, they were kind of torn between the story they wanted to tell, which was. You know, the, the, the prostitutes are the heroes and the, the villain is this dick who, you know, in the story it was a preacher and in the, uh, the actual episode it was a teacher. Um, and the way that, um, the networks or standards or whatever it was back then, they don't want to seem to be condoning prostitution. And so they had that whole story with Marcia's character about like getting her dignity back and, um, it almost seems to contradict some of the stuff that they're doing. Uh, and at the same time, it's also a story that I understand because uh, I think some people might find that degrading to themselves. Like maybe it's not a choice that they made in their lives uh, that that was something they wanted to get into. So I don't think it was hugely problematic. I just think like maybe they were a bit torn with how they were going to tell the story. Allison, it's it's funny that you point out sort of that it's sort of it trying to serve a couple of different masters because that to me was the the most glaring problem with the episode and I did sort of um, allude to this when talking to Chris. It was just totally all over the place. It was really serious at points and then really like um, scary at points and then it was farcical at other points. Especially enter enter the sheriff played by the <laughs> dude from Police oh Academy. Yeah, playing playing the dude from Police Academy. <laughs> Man, I, okay, I was I haven't seen the uh, the Police Academy movies. I had to look this up, but what? he's Tackleberry. Um, I know what? What, I know what Police Academy is, but I haven't seen it. So when I was watching Jesus. it, I was confused. So I was young. like, why is there this dumb sheriff <laughs> suddenly in the story in the last act? Like, where did this guy come from? What is going on? Yep. <laughs> Clearly promoting the latest Police Academy film. I think they were like six or seven in by that point. It like, had man. to be. Not even Gutenberg was... Uh, maybe they still had Michael Winslow, but at that point... Oh, Michael yeah. Winslow had to have been in all of them. Like, I can't... I don't think he would ever say no to a to a project. I think Michael Winslow would be in all of them. <laughs> He's got the one thing that he can do. He's going to do it. 
Was wasn't there an animated series? And I'm sure he was in that as well. Uh, was oh, there yeah, yeah, Saturday morning cartoons from 80s movies that were inappropriate for children? Of course, there was a Rambo cartoon. Why not a Police Academy <laughs> cartoon? Did they go to the Blue Oyster in the cartoon? Or I hope so. <laughs> that reminds me, of, they were going to do that Quantum Leap episode that was a cartoon and they didn't get to do it. So mm. bummed. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Oh, when I heard about that, I was like... Well, I don't know. I still have my I, my doubts about it that. Would have, okay, I don't know if it would be good, but it would be hilarious. Like, man, I just want to see it. And it was the animators who did uh, Akira as well. Yeah. So that okay, would have been wait, bizarre. Wait, wait, we're going deep now. <laughs> I had no idea that there was so much already put into it. Like, So for, for neophytes like me, even though I've been a fan for, I don't know, a million years, was there really that much pre-planning already done for the cartoon episode or is this just all hearsay it, yeah they announced it somewhere didn't they matt do you remember yeah, uh, well deborah talked about it a few times uh throughout the production of seasons four and five um and it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and then yeah years later uh, a fan managed to track down like allison said um the the akira team who confirmed that they were involved in it but Beyond that, I've not been able to find anything out. So I, I don't know if it was just um, optimism or or what. But I think they were probably planning it for season five because season five had a lot of like yes. gimmicks and grabs Ooh, and things yes. like that. And oh, it, it season five also had like no budget. And if you're going to be doing an animated episode, you have to have a budget. So I think that's probably what it was. They just couldn't afford it, and and all of the planning that it would take to do something like that. It'd, it'd be completely different than planning a, a live action episode and, and yeah. TV just moves yeah. so fast. Yeah. yeah. You'd have to put that into the pipeline at least a season ahead, right? Just because of the pre-production. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. Now I, hmm, I think I just in my head figured out how I might like an animated episode, make it so since they're obviously breaking every rule of leaping, cause how the blankety blank do you jump into a cartoon? How do you leap <laughs> into a cartoon in the first place? So just take that off the table. But if you're going to be going that far afield, then why not have him uh, leap throughout different eras and have each style of animation correspond to that era? I think mm. that would have been a neat way to go. Yeah. Well, I think the idea was that, he wasn't literally jumping into a cartoon. It was like he he was jumping into an, an animator who sort of saw the world in this animated style. So sort of what was in his head. Yeah, it was a wasn't it going to be like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit slash Cool World kind of? Oh, thing? is that the idea? That's oh, that's that's what I thought. Even that would have been even harder than a straight cartoon. If they were mixing it with like the live action too, I mean, yeesh, maybe, maybe a... I just imagine that. I don't know. Maybe that's just how I. <laughs> that would be that's kind of funny. It, right? What yeah. if it's like it's live action, but like Al's animated and he's <laughs> interacting with the animated Al? Hearts popping out of his eyes when he sees a lady. Oh yeah, yeah. Al would totally be a wolf. Or according to some fans, when he sees Sam. Uh, <laughs> I think we're avoiding talking about Southern comforts. I think so. Southern comforts, right? Totally all over the place. Y- you know what? You know what? They do have some comedy in it that I enjoy. Like, uh, I think they had a lot of great comedians in it. Um, And uh, I do enjoy a story that puts Sam in this really uncomfortable position of of running a cat house. Just any time he's in this uncomfortable sexual situation, I I find that very funny. Well, the the funniest thing, he leaps in and immediately gets groped, because that's hilarious if you're a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of, you know, know, I I don't mind that. 
No, no, because, I mean, they do establish a great length that Gilbert uh, yeah. and Marsha were in yes. a relationship. Later on, they do. Yeah, like, yeah. if someone's, a, like, a couple, and especially if he's running a cat house, like, they would, you have to assume that that character is comfortable in sexual situations. It, yeah. w- within that level of the plot line, absolutely. As entertainment for the viewers, it, it's purely, look, here's Sam getting groped by some woman he doesn't know. Isn't that funny? Well, here, here's what I enjoy. Here's what I enjoy about Sam Beckett as a character. Um, this doesn't count for season one because, like, he was a big horn dog in season one. <laughs> he, he was horny for anyone. Um, but in, in the, the later seasons, Sam Beckett is such a kind of asexual being you know like he's just very uncomfortable with uh with with, um casual sexual situations like it has to be intimate it has to be something that he's in love with the person you know there's a couple of exceptions to that but all right there are some exceptions but you know when when you see him get into situations like this he's just very uncomfortable with it and there's a lot of shows where it's not like that. Like you have the main characters just like, and the ladies, <laughs> you know, you got like a uh, David Hasselhoff with a new lady every week, you know, kind of thing, but not, not with Sam Beckett. It's, it's very different for that kind of character. And it's uh, a nice contrast. Cause you, you already have that with Al anyway. Yeah. And I think that's why you have it so much with Al because Al is, I mean, there's nothing he can do besides maybe leer and lurk and peep. Mm. So, he does some things that are very questionable. He's going into ladies' bathrooms sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. P- peep is a nice way of putting peep, it. Peep, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not saying it's not reprehensible. What I'm saying <laughs> is that Sam is there acting in the moment, so you have to have the most prudish of prudes. Otherwise, you know, people have human nature. And what if there's a beautiful woman throwing herself at you and she thinks that you're the person that you leapt into, where is the moral line there? And it's not hurting her because as far as she's concerned, she's with the person that that she loves or that she's with or that she's into. And okay, so does Sam enjoy it? I think that by taking sort of that that conflict off the table and just making him uncomfortable with any kind of intimacy at all, except for when an episode requires it because that's what they want to highlight – it, it sort of makes the storytelling a little bit simpler. Well, and also... And it offers comedy. That that just goes into, like, uh, an issue with the show in general, and that, like, wh- where is the line drawn when you are romantic or intimate or sexual with someone under false pretenses? Uh, and that's something that, you know, Quantum Leap kind of dodges around a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think it probably yeah. is for the better that... Um, that he is uncomfortable with it most of the time. But in a situation, yeah. uh, let's say like this, uh, if he was getting really into it and he was it, like decided to sleep with them or whatever, uh, and it's them in a, in a cat house and they would sleep with a lot of guys. I don't know. Like sometimes there, there are situations where it's like, what if he slept with someone who didn't know the person he leaped into? Would that still be deceitful, even though they don't know who he is either way? So if you're saying if uh, he just decided to take his host's uh, aura out on the town and have a one-night stand, it'd still just be him acting as him and no strings attached. Yeah, very, like, it's not interesting. like... interesting. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if that makes it any better. I, I just, I wonder if it, situationally it would depend. Hmm. 
That's an interesting question. I bet our listeners have some ideas about that. <laughs> and it's a, it's an actual gray area, like a wrinkle that they gloss over so effectively. I've never really thought about it because they never really explored it. Well, I mean, like if you found out, if you were in this situation, you found out that you slept with your wife and it was actually someone else. Wouldn't you feel like you were violated in some way? Like, wouldn't it get into sort of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And unless I was in some kind of bedroom farce, um, <laughs> I, I really don't... I, well, uh, if yes. leaping existed, you know, someone leaped into your wife and slept with you, you would, you would feel really uncomfortable with that situation. <laughs> Especially if it was Sam Beckett, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't want to sleep with... Look, if you knew it was Sam Beckett and he wanted to sleep with you, maybe it would be different, but he can't He's lie about it. He's a beautiful man. He's a very beautiful man. Didn't say he wasn't. Oh my goodness, this went really weird really quickly. <laughs> yeah, just like Southern Comforts. And the funny thing is, I was gonna be, I was gonna be a giant hypocrite and say, well, okay, if it was Aaliyah who left into my wife, would I have a different reaction because it's female? But at the same time, it's the same violation. Yeah, at its, it's base, not about. It's it, the same violation. It's not about. Yeah. It's not about the sex, but. You know, that's where my mind went. So what does that say about me? Yeah, well, I'm... Okay, I mean, well, that's that's a dude that's inhabiting that space, technically, who led me on, as opposed to that's another female who led me on. Hmm. Mm. Allison, this is a deep thought for a Friday afternoon. What are you doing to me? <laughs> We're probably going darker than this episode warrants, really, but <laughs> he didn't sleep Let's with it. Let's go farcical. No. You, know, you know what I? You know what I? Uh, there was a part in the episode I really enjoyed uh, relating to to this when they're uh, when they're looking out at all the ladies hitting on the guys that just came in the first time that they get some some Johns in there. Sam is watching, and this this like really old man takes one of the ladies and goes upstairs, and he goes back in the room with Al. He's like, "That is the saddest thing I've ever seen." <laughs> he's just so genuine, like he's so sad yeah. about that. I don't remember that. I wonder if they cut that off of the NBC cut. You know, you know what? It's there, but like you don't see the old man very well. And I, I honestly didn't even understand that was what was happening till I read the script. <laughs> and then when I see it, I'm like, yeah, there is an old man there. But the, I don't know. I think maybe that was a failing in the, the editing room somewhere. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. But again, it's again tonally mixed message on this. So I was in prostitution fun. All these girls are a load of laughs. So this is so sad, and this is so well. Demoralized. He's the and one now who we're going to sing that. 99 think... bottles of beer on the wall, and I. I don't think the episode is presenting that it's a bad thing. I think it's just Sam Beckett in his uncomfortableness with that situation. Oh, Sam's being typical judgmental Sam. Yeah, like Al's totally into it. So you got characters with two differing viewpoints there. Oh, and I think, you know, we did um, in uh, Private Dancer, I, I did mention the fact that Al is in the military career and has probably been all over the world and has probably definitely you know, engaged uh, or at least run into some prostitutes. In oh, I'm day. sure he's told like some anecdotes about prostitutes he's met on the show. So. And this one kind of proves that he is all for prostitutes and whorehouses and, you know, just just being in that moment. I thought it was very telling that those first set of Johns that you were talking about, Allison, were a bunch of sailors on leave. <laughs> and I said Al uh -huh. could be among them. You yeah, know, in his in his whites and out there and just doing his thing in his little Popeye in his little Popeye getup before he's got to get back on on the boat. <laughs> Do they know? wear the Popeye getup if they're pilots? 
I don't know. Because he, was, hmm. he wasn't on a ship, as far as I know. He was a yeah. pilot. So do they wear... I don't think they but wear he's the a, Popeye. He's, a, he's a Navy pilot, so I don't know what they wore when they were on... on my, my dad was in the Navy proper. I'd have to ask him. I know he had that that Popeye getup. I've seen pictures of him in it, but uh, I, yeah. I don't cool. know. He You're didn't like, fly a plane. Do you, when do you so. wear the Popeye getup? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dad. Dad, I have, thank you for your service, Dad. Um, so about that Popeye. <laughs> well, anyway, um, that's yeah. So that's that's another way I sort of connected it to Al and to some of the stuff that we've been talking about on recent shows. And again, all over the place with is it is it morally reprehensible, like Private Dancer said it was, or is it just good, clean fun amongst consenting adults, like this one sort of sort of hit you with? And there was interesting when the when the guys in the fezes come in, and the the one guy says like. I'd be talking to them if I had my druthers. And then <laughs> Al has this boisterous laugh, and Sam gives him this death look, and he apologizes. And I'm very confused by this. What what was the joke? I'd be talking to them if I had my druthers. Well, I think, the, isn't the joke is that Sam is trying to make sure that nobody sleeps with anybody in a cat house during prime time. And Al is not making it any easier on him. Yet he's the one that's saying, you can't let them do this. You can't let them do that. And when Sam is trying to make that happen or trying to not make things happen, Al is just there piling on. I guess. Saying, huh, look at what a hard time you're having. I don't know. I mean, again, just totally weird. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? <laughs> Did but, you think about this, that? This, this, no, not that specifically. But the, you, you keep saying this, and I've really got to challenge you on this. What is so wrong with this episode being, as you keep saying, tonally all over the place? Every time we've had a, a hard-hitting episode, we, and we've, we've talked about a couple of these over the last few weeks, um, there's usually been some lighter moments of comedy, and we've agreed that the, the comedy against the hard stuff is actually really good. What is it about this one that doesn't work for you? Yeah, thank you for making me clarify that, because you're absolutely right. I just think that when they went with comedy on this one, they went super, super big. So it was almost like a parody. Instead of just comedy inserted into the drama, it was just like, boom, here's the joke. And <laughs> it, it just like you, it just came out of left field. And that's why I say tonally. It's just like, it was just so over the top comedically in a lot of places. Not that I didn't like it. I, I especially like the Shriner guys with that guy. I had my druthers and, you know, we're not playing any more <laughs> games. Are we going to get joke. to touch these ladies? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was wondering when they said, hey, were you guys in a club or something when they're pointing to the fezes? And they said, no, no, we won these off of a guy, guys in a poker game in a hotel. Now, was that the network's way of saying Shriners don't sue us? We're not saying you're Shriners? And they even say that they're not no, Shriners, no, no. or is that it a was, joke that, that they use to like hide their identity? Or the, the hotel know. thing, this somehow tied into how Sam figured out that the the Jake Dorliat character was staying at the hotel. I remember this, but I don't remember the exact connection. So I think that was just their way of of fitting that into the conversation, the the hotel. See, now I thought that that was a lapse in continuity in the episode because I think that Dorliak tells Gina that he just started alphabetically looking at every hotel until he found her? Or did he tell Sam that? So I think Sam assumed that he would start at the Adams and he would most likely be staying there. I, that, 
That was the way I fixed that in my no, head. No, I, I think it did have to do with that, but I, I, I can't tell you the connection beyond that. <laughs> we are such prepared hosts. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember if it was something that was in the episode or just in the script, because this, this happens sometimes where it's like it, there's a line cut or something where it's like, oh, right, okay, right. I see why, why this happened now, but in the episode, it's like, oh, I guess he just magically knows he's in this hotel. I don't think tonally it was that all over the place. I, I agree with Matt. Well, it wasn't when 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 Tackleberry comes in and well, Tackleberry, he kicks the door open that and it breaks just comes nose. out of nowhere. It didn't have to do with the tone. It's just because that character was yeah. not part of it until then, and all of a sudden he's doing like pratfalls and running right. into doors. And I'm like, who <laughs> and is that's this not guy? totally all over the place to me. <laughs> that's 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 a little bit breaking sort of what was coming before in a weird way. No, I, there was goofy stuff through the whole thing. I thought they were kind of larger than life, and that that's the point because they're trying to be a, a fantasy for these people. They're putting on a show to get their customers in. But how did that sheriff ever get anything done? Uh, yeah. Right. How, how did he know. do his job? <laughs> like, you got to assume, like, let's go to that scene where they're looking for Dorliac in the hotel. By the and... way, can we just acknowledge the whole, like, Dorliac yeah, name? Yeah, you know, we didn't do why that did, with, why with did Chris. He get name, why, why did they name this horrible character after <laughs> Jean-Pierre Dorliac? Poor Jean-Pierre. <laughs> yeah, like, why is that the tribute to him? Like maybe they needed somebody that was sort of like uh, with with a bayou kind of name, you know, like a French name. Maybe, so they, maybe figured, they oh, thought we gotta... it would be really funny if like this evil priest was named after their their <laughs> their, their, their costume designer. Maybe I don't know. I, I just figured it was just a nod to him. Probably, I think they had like a racist nurse named after Deborah Pratt. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, true. Right. I think they what just like calling evil thing. characters after people they know. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead with what you were talking about with, no, with the character. No, no, it's okay. It's not really that thing. But again, it's just to do with that sheriff character. Like Matt said, how did he get anything done? Um, he was with Sam when they got the room number at the lobby, right? When they went to the Adams Hotel. Okay, we got to figure out where he is. Oh, the, the desk clerk told me the room number. Oh, the door is open. Where was he when Sam was getting this information? They came to the hotel together. Wasn't he maybe standing right next to Sam? Or here's a thought. He's the sheriff, not a whorehouse uh, monger, leading an investigation into somebody that might kill somebody. Yet Sam is the one taking the lead on the investigation. The sheriff doesn't even know what room Dorliac is in, but Sam somehow does. Like, where did that disconnect take place? He's like immediately wanting to team up with this... What would you call someone who runs a cat house like that? What is his title? A pimp? Is that what that's, it is? That's what Dorley I kept calling him, sure. Well, because, I mean, like, you would say, like, you know, if a woman was running, you'd be like a madam at the broth. I wonder if there was another term. But anyway, he's immediately going to team up with Sam. Like, from that cop's point of view, like, what... This is a weird situation to be in. Like, we know that Sam's the lead character in the show, but why is this guy teaming up with him all of a sudden to, like, tackle him? And, like, he immediately believes this whole, like, um, a abusive spouse thing going on. And, like, I, I don't know. Like, it just, it's weird. It's basically the same plot line as in those bad westerns where a, a little kid gets deputized. And you have that moment where the, the sheriff puts a badge onto the kid. So. <laughs> Sam gets a little badge. Yeah, dear yes. Sam. 
<laughs> running into doors. <laughs> Leave the precocious kid up to it. He's going to get that school teacher. And the whole, like, oh my God. And then like the ending where they like trick him and then rip <laughs> off the outfit and kiss him and get the, it's almost like the the recording. You know, you record the bad guy and they don't know they've been recorded. Like, ah, we yeah. gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And it looked like that old-timey 1850s camera that he was taking the picture with. You'd probably have to stand there for a good five minutes before you got enough exposure. <laughs> yeah, that's no, true. Yeah. Like, immediately, he's got, like, a Polaroid coming out of it or something. <laughs> he, had, like, he had, like, a slate or something. And, again, uh, you tell me this isn't just a little bit weird. He got so paranoid about that picture getting out that he wound up in the loony bin. Like, oh, is what? that what, mm. what Al said? Yeah. What? It's like that's that's <laughs> uh, ultimately what happens to him is that he winds up in the loony bin. That seems like they're trying to get a better wrap up here. <laughs> yeah. He he was he was a little unhinged beforehand, let's face it. The, the, the picture thing may have just been the last straw. He he, he was not a well-balanced individual. <laughs> you know, as soon as Sam got that sheriff badge. <laughs> <laughs> He changes his accent and he goes, oh, we're going to have some fun. And he goes to New Orleans. He stays in New Orleans and he's, he becomes Dwayne Pride. <laughs> it all makes sense. We were waiting for the crossover. I just, I want to say, I've seen a little bit of NCIS New Orleans, all right? And I watched the pilot and immediately they start off with someone opens a crate of shrimp. Shrimp spills out, and there's a severed hand in the shrimp. Ooh. Oh, no! How do we know that they're in New Orleans? There's a severed hand in the shrimp! <laughs> we gotta solve the severed hand in the shrimp case. Were those shrimp or crawdads? <laughs> no, they the were crawdads shrimp. could have gnawed the hand they off. They were shrimp, I recall vividly, <laughs> okay. because that was the best part of the episode. Oh, I man. have never seen a frame of any NCIS. I have so. not either, and I feel like I've missed out now. I don't I don't know. <laughs> oh, we gonna have some fun. I was thinking about that because in that show, Scott Bakula's got a, a New Orleans accent, so I was just thinking about that because this was in New Orleans. Well, yeah, yeah, that's there you go. There's your fan fiction right there. Yeah, New Orleans is such a fun setting. I wish that they had gotten to do more around there rather like largely it takes place in the cat house. Uh, well, it takes place on a soundstage. Uh, there's sure. only a couple of insert, insert <laughs> shots of stock footage of uh, the French Quarter. Like sure. so much of Quantum Leap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it's not like they were going to be on Bourbon Street. I like that. Um, the, the only kind of like New Orleans flavor I felt they really got in there was the the old, uh, I don't know if she was like a maid or what she was, the old black lady with the shotgun. Yeah. And she's yeah. like making up gumbo and and coming up with some sort of like weird drink for gina to to drink like bug juice or something i I gotta ask i gotta ask a character okay for the 90s maybe not so okay for today no i don't i mean what's what do you find bad about it i just thought it was a little bit stereotypical a little bit caricature-ish and a little bit offensive to be honest with you i don't know What, what do you think matt well, to be honest, I was too distracted by the fact that she got probably the best line of the season. Um, when when she steps out and says, and he even offered it to me. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought that lady was having a lot of fun with this role because she was like, what, in her 80s or something? I mean, she uh, she can't have been getting that many, 
you know, juicy kind of roles. And maybe that um, kind of goes with, with Tommy Thompson writing it, too, because mm. he mentioned that um, he likes having older actors and giving them fun that's roles. True. That's mm. true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe my C- my PC alarms are just a little too sensitive these days. No, because I, 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 I think you're quite right about it. It's just I couldn't even think about that because I adored her character too much um, <laughs> to, to actually notice that maybe it was a bit offensive. But yeah. Well, it's one of those things where I don't find it offensive personally, but if someone said that they were offended, like, uh, like I could see why. So, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to be like, oh, no, it's not. But... Uh, I don't know. Okay. I like the character. She had some fun lines. Like, she comes out with a shotgun. She's ready to just kick some ass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> feisty old lady. And uh, I thought there were a lot of, like, touches in this that you could tell were Tommy Thompson. Um, like, there would be kind of strange details that don't need to be there. They're just there to be weird or quirky. Like, uh, the um, Lauren Tom's character, the, the little Asian uh, oh, yeah. little Bo, Bo Peep. Peep. Yeah. When she comes out with the glass eye as a gift, yeah. like she's like, it's a glass <laughs> eye. Like what? And then Sam's reaction, like, <laughs> why a glass I eye? I was expecting that to be like a Chekhov's gun. Like if you show a yeah. glass eye in the first act, somebody better be wearing it in the third act, you know? Yeah. And it just never went anywhere. It was just a weird little aside, like you said. I think it was more of a running gag in the script than it was in the episode. Like she and the, uh, the larger lady uh diane the one Delano's. from northern northern exposure yeah i think i think those two uh had more of like a thing going on like they were just sort of bickering with each other like it, it was just some character stuff gotcha. that, that sort of ended up on on the cutting room floor okay uh you know i thought that was interesting too uh the the northern exposure lady she's uh diane delano and i don't think she got like a lot of roles like this where it's more feminine and sexy I could be wrong, but I feel like, you know, she she got a lot of, like, you know, butch roles because of, you know, her voice and, and her size. Yeah, I've only ever seen her in Northern Exposure besides this. She anyway, was in Cop I, Rock. That I recall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Cop Rock. I should, I should have asked Laura about her. Oh, well. <laughs> well, she was only in one episode. She she was... Uh, so, she, so was Laura. She was Laura the butch, Harrington, by the way, everyone. She was the butch <laughs> yeah. cop who was hitting on the guy, and he's like, uh-uh. She sang a song about wanting to go bumpty bumpty with him. <laughs> go woo woo woo. <laughs> Something tells me you know this song and it's on regular rotation of your playlist, oh, Allison. It's one of the few songs that was actually any good in cop rock. <laughs> if you say so, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> I think maybe we'll play out the episode with that. <laughs> with, the, with the bumpty bumpty song. <laughs> <laughs> you have to send me a link. I've never heard of it, so I'm sure I'll be able to find oh, it. Oh man, I'm so, I uh, keep going all over the place with this. It's uh, fine. This is going to be a very yeah. What's happening tonight? Let me let me do this. Let me do this. I know that we've been sort of um, all over the place, like you said, Allison. But there are some really good strengths of, of this episode that surprised me. So let me just give credit where credit's due. I know that you had mentioned the scene between Gina and Marcia as just one of those scenes where oh these now these characters are talking and we're inserting sort of the drama but i thought it was a a great twist that marcia was on gina's side and that it turned out that they were related because i think in most shows you would expect that marcia would play the heavy because she's the madam and she's threatened by gina and if if you don't start sleeping with these guys we are going to have a problem. We're going to have to kick you out. And it would just be another way, an easy way to introduce drama for Gina's character to put her in a harder position. And they went completely opposite of that, where Marsha was 
really supportive, but she kept on saying, if Jill Bear finds out, he'll throw us both out without even thinking twice. So what does that say about what kind of guy Jill Bear is? I found that very mm-hmm. interesting that yeah. he they seem to be implying he really wasn't that great of a person. Right. And all of a sudden, Sam is this person and becomes the hero of the story. Yeah. And no one seems to comment on this. And the thing is, Marsha is like the one that's all ready to marry him and have this relationship with him, yet she knows in her heart that he would just toss her aside mm. because she's not earning. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a pimp. Well, I think that's you know? part of the reason I, I didn't find it... Uh, like it's part of the reason that I understood her character more because on the one hand, it is saying you know like being a prostitute, uh, you know, makes you you have low self worth or whatever. But on the other hand, like in her situation, it would, but it didn't for the other people, uh, because mm. she's you know she doesn't think she has anything else in life but to to marry someone who she doesn't really love, who doesn't seem to really care about her that much. Um, mm. So she does have this low self-esteem uh, because of that. Yeah, and I like that they kept it as an individual story and not like a sweeping generalization. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got to bring this up again. The whole like, the very last line where <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I did not Alice, pick up on that at all. Leave that alone. <laughs> well, Al says, you want to come? And then he says, not this time. Like, I have to believe that it's, <laughs> it's wordplay. <laughs> you know why you know why I think I got distracted from what they're saying in that scene? It's because I think this is one of the few times where Sam sort of gets this feeling, this premonition. He almost broadcasts, sorry, time to leap, when he picks his head up and he says, No, not this time. Mm. It's like, okay, he can feel it coming. Yeah. And sometimes when he you know, he'll leap in the middle of a sentence or something. And it was just different enough to take me out of the dialogue and more into the physicality and sort of what's going on in Sam's head at that point, aside from what he's saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. So, or that or Allison's just le- lecherous. I, I also think Allison is reaching. <laughs> yes, but she's le- she's as lecherous as Al You know what? We're going to call up Tommy <laughs> Thompson. We'll be like, hey, I got a question about some of your dialogue here. We got we to gotta squ- quash this beef here. What's going on? <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I'm not saying you're wrong, and I'm sure Tommy will say, "Yeah, you caught that, huh?" So, <laughs> and that's kind of what Chris was was saying too. So, yeah. but at the uh, same time, if only ten viewers caught it, and you're one of them, that still says something about you as well. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> that's the uh, the episode is about a cat house, okay? <laughs> but it's such a fun, happy-go-lucky cat house that where no one has sex. Play something religious. <laughs> I do like I like the actresses that they have. They were having a ball with it. I I bet it was a fun one to film. Yeah, totally. oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And um, again, I like the fact that there was no individual. I guess aside from Gina, but it's it's kind of what they almost did with Diana in Private Dancer. There was no hooker heart of gold kind of deal because she technically wasn't a hooker, and the other hookers didn't seem very tormented by their lives and Marsha had too much depth to be a cliche I thought and maybe it was just the way that Rita Taggart played her but on on all those scores where it could have gone so horribly cliche it it charted those waters it was right there in that in that pond you know where all that stuff happens yet it somehow didn't get wet is that a good analogy Hmm. I don't know (laughs) I think I got you 
<laughs> you get me? It's like it was all there. It was all, you know, oh, here's this trope, here's this trope, here's this trope. But they kind of sidestepped and transcended all of them. I think that's a better way to say it. Yeah, I think, like, the concept is uh, better than than the final product in that, like, I like this idea of, like, a, a quantum leap where Sam's taking care of uh, or in charge of a cat house and... I don't think it was it was made badly. I don't think it was written badly. I think it just sort of it's um it's competently made. It's got some funny stuff to it. It just doesn't stick with me. I, f- I feel like maybe it, there could have been something that was a little bit greater. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean it's not going to go down as an all timer, but it's certainly no Piano Man. i liked piano man better than this really oh (laughs) no guys we don't we don't have another two hours for this (laughs) i'm sorry matt but that's an interesting call to me allison i'd I'd watch this one over piano man every day of the week so hey good for you (laughs) somebody's got to stand up for the jinxes and the klutz i guess you know what? Or is it clutches? You know what? Piano Man's going to take me somewhere in the night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, I don't think I have much more to say about Southern Comforts. How about you guys? Any final thoughts to wrap it up? Or I certainly don't. Yeah, I think I think we got it covered. We got too deep even. <laughs> All right. Well, we might be getting deep, but we also have listeners and they occasionally get deep and they do so by reaching out to us via feedback. Um, we did get some feedback for Piano Man. Do you guys want to go through it? Sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. I'm going to read the first one. It's uh, from Tom Saliva on Facebook. And I'll do the first paragraph. Uh, Allison, you do the second paragraph. Okay. Oh, gosh, I got to find it again. Hang on. <laughs> I don't want to be caught unawares. Specifically, Tom wrote us about Matt's discovery of that whole mirror image revelation that he gave at the end of the last episode. And you guys, if you haven't heard it or you haven't seen mirror image and you don't want to be spoiled, just fast forward a minute or two because he sort of gets a little bit deeper. If you remember, Matt discovered that there was an actual shooting day scheduled for all of the space warrior far future space bar stuff. With Al as the blonde bombshell. With the cassabas. With the cassabas, yes. Cassabas wow was the scene, (laughs) I believe. So Tom writes, my speculation based on that new mirror image information, all of that was filmed. Specifically because there were concerns NBC would not renew the show. Don needed something to show the network what the plan for the start of season six would be. My feelings on Mirror Image and any plans after was that Don was fully conceding that any rules of leaping were whatever best suited the story. It was about the drama first. The time travel was more of a storytelling device. One constant from the pilot was Sam did not fully understand what is happening to him, either due to his lost memories or outside forces like God slash fate slash time, or a combination of both. In the pilot, he first thinks he is dead or dreaming, so the explanations that Mirror Image must all be in his head too ignores that Sam's whole journey, the whole series, is dreamlike. The bartender tells Sam that most of his perceptions of the rules were self-imposed and not real. Hmm, but did we ever... Well, thank you, Tom, first of all, for for the thoughts. Did we ever sort of hint at the fact that we think that Mirror Image all took place in Sam's head? I don't think so. I think it's a popular theory people have. Yeah, it's certainly something I've heard, but I don't buy it. Yeah, I, I never heard that before. 
I think it all goes down to um, the rules were whatever was convenient for an episode. I think that's a, a fair yeah, take. That one I buy. <laughs> that one I buy, yeah. Especially as season five went on. Sure. Yeah. I don't yeah, think definitely. like, you know, it, 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 I'm just going to be like straight up honest here. Like deep, deep analysis into mirror image. Um, I, I get kind of sick of it because it could sometimes get kind of like, ooh, what if it was <laughs> like he's dead the whole time? And <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I think <laughs> uh, I, my my uh, thoughts are that it, it really happened and, and it was just sort of a surreal existential divine intervention type thing. Yeah, totally. Did we cover everything from this feedback uh, as far as... I got one more that I want to read if you guys if you guys don't mind. Okay, well, well thank you again to uh, thank you yes, again Tom. to Tom Saliva. Yeah, thank saliva? you. No, Saliva. I think Saliva's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Sorry, man. I have one more Facebook post that I'd like to read. It's from a friend of mine named John Irons. He's a fellow podcaster. He uh, does the Cosmic Potato Show with Sean Ray, and he's also the host of his own show called Captain Game Show. It's all on the Cosmic Potato Network, which you can hear the advertisement for in the breaks in the most recent episodes. Um, those guys have had me on multiple times uh, to promote the Quantum Leap podcast and my other podcasts. And I think that John has been listening for a while, but he just, Allison, your edit of the Piano Man episode has got to be the best episode we have ever done. I think of the entire Quantum Leap podcast, in my opinion. And he just wrote, he, he was so moved by it, he was compelled to write, I love this podcast and I loved this episode. Great job, guys. So thank you, John, for reaching out. Oh, what a douche. <laughs> 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 what if you didn't say anything else after that? I just want to do. If I know Johnny's laughing his ass off right now. Oh, well, thank you, John, and and, yeah, and thank nice. you, Chris, for the kind words about the edit. That I had a lot of fun doing that. So I guess if anyone listening thought that it was a little bit out of the norm, it's because uh, I I took the lead on the edit for for Piano Man, and yeah, it was fun. And she knocked it out of the park. In my opinion. So. Oh, thank you. Someday you'll be my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Just drop it in right there. Someday you'll be my wife. All right. Well, well, you guys had the great Biff material there. So. <laughs> uh, Biff. Love Biff. If you want to be like John and if you want to be like Tom Saliva, there are many ways that you can contact us. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at quantum leap pod. You can email us at quantum leap podcast at gmail.com or you can just call us up on the phone at 707-847-6682. That's 707-847-6682. And just remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast. If you guys want to go that extra step and support us, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast so you have all the contact information what are you waiting for let's hear from you all right guys what's next what 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 are we moving on to now we should just insert a guitar solo and that's it <laughs> <laughs> it's glitter rock glitter rock
This is another one I'm not too sure about, guys. It's really? been a long time since, I, since I've seen it. I think you've just forgotten all of Quantum Leap now. You're like, uh, I don't know. What happened in that one? <laughs> I have to say, I have a real blind spot when it comes to the later half of season three. It's crazy. I just, there are so many that I, I think I've seen them once. I think season three was like their strongest season. I think like most of them are very, very solid. Oh, I'm not saying that. It's just that we're in a string of episodes now that maybe I've seen once. And I just don't know for whatever reason, because I've never done like a full series rewatch. So for whatever reason, I never caught these in reruns. I never really experienced them beyond my my first time. So it's going to be interesting. Another sort of rediscovery for me when it comes to Glitter Rock. And hey, we'll see if it holds up. And who who else? Who else can we get on the show from the cast or the crew that I can insult with Glitter Rock? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Chris wrote Glitter Rock, so why don't we get him back and you can just say, nah, that was a mediocre, forgettable episode. <laughs> hey, why can't they all be the boogeyman, Chris? <laughs> You're just chasing that boogeyman high. Can't really get to it. Chasing that boogeyman dragon. I don't know. I don't know. Well, anyway, we'll find out on the next thrilling installment of the Quantum Leap podcast. Until then, I've been Christopher D. Philippus. I've been Alison Fregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time. I guess I had to come up in the roster of names. <laughs> <laughs> Never gonna live that down. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. Hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris. With voice talent and contributions from Zoe Dean and Hayden McQueenie. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Allison, and Christopher DeFilippis. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Barren Space production.